Hello, welcome back to This Film Not Rated. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. And we're here to talk about films we watched this week without trying to give it any sort of qualifier, positive or negative. This week, I watched a couple of movies. Uh, Uncut Gems, Friday the 13th Part 6, and Get Out. Uh, this week I watched Blue from the French Three Colors trilogy, mm-hmm. and I watched The Girl Who Played With Fire, the Swedish sequel to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Alright, so... What do you uh, want to start? I want to start with Get Out. Want to start with Get Out? So, before we do anything, uh, Get Out is a movie that Jordan Peele did not expect to blow up the way it did. It as uh, kind yeah. of an, an, an unintended side effect for 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 the movie itself. So, in the documentary Horror Noir, mm-hmm. which is on Shutter, yeah, you can hear Jordan Peele talk about how he wasn't sure how this movie was going to be received, but you know, just like any creative product you're making, you make it and you hope that people like it, but then sometimes they get it and they don't always get it the way you want them to get it. Right. And he sort of set a qualifier for himself that as long as black audiences got what he hoped they would get out of it, he would be satisfied with it. And in that sense, there seems to be a lot of controversy and talk after the fact of people deciding who is and who isn't qualified to talk about this movie. So we're not here to qualify whether or not this is good or bad. Or try to be any kind of authority or statement on what this movie represents for any population or any part of history. Mm -hmm. But we talked last week about Selma and movies as an empathy machine. We did that, yes. So what is it that you would want to talk about when it comes to Get Out? So what struck me the most was uh, how well written the movie was. Damn it! Uh, There's there's a lot of... of, uh, a key moments that kind of uh, are meant to give you a an, an an uneasy feeling before everything is is revealed. Like there, there's a scene during the whole tour where uh, the father of the girlfriend, the sh- tour of the house, yes, where where the father is uh, showing a a myriad of pictures on the wall, and there's his grandfather who got beat up by Jesse Owens to go to the Olympics, and there's this line uh, that that he says he almost got over it. Then you move into the kitchen where uh, you, where he verbally says, this is my, my mom's favorite place, so we try to keep a little piece of her in it. And as he says that, the maid with the mother insider comes into frame. Oh, full spoilers, by the way, on this podcast, if y'all weren't aware of that by this episode. <laughs> uh, and So yeah, the grandmother is standing in the kitchen when they say there's a little piece of her in there. Yeah. She's just, you know... Mm-hmm. hijack the brain yeah. of some poor woman and i think jordan peele has, has gone on record saying the idea of the sunken place in this movie is uh to give a visual metaphor to how uh to how well that's that's something and it's really hard to not talk about this and talk about what i like or dislike about it but the documentary horror noir yeah jordan peele talks about the sunken place as representative of what he feels is the black experience of watching movies up to the point of Get Out. Where you're stuck in a dark room, you're mm-hmm. screaming at the screen, but what you want to happen isn't happening. Right. And there's... I, I, I personally think that that, that that mentality extends beyond the theater itself. The, the sunken place could also be a metaphor to everyday life, where you're looking around and seeing things that don't quite match up, and you feel like you don't have a voice to say anything, which is why when uh, David 
Kaluya is is in the sunken place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't speak. Literally, he has no voice to say anything. It's and, that sort of dream state where you want to yell and words don't come out. I yeah, think we all have that kind of dream. And uh, so the idea of, of being able to see everything but being able to do nothing about it is inherently terrifying. And Jordan Peele uh, effortlessly gets that point across. <laughs> There's no other way that I could say it. And, uh, well, you could say you feel like he gets that point across. Yeah, but it feels so effortless, though, which is why I gave the buzzer. <laughs> okay. So you were talking about the writing of the movie, and... Yeah, so um, going watching it once, mm-hmm. uh, there are twists and turns and payoffs, yeah. but it does stick you strongly in the perspective yeah. of someone who's afraid of prejudice and judgment right. and threats to his safety. Mm-hmm. So little things that you recognize, there's, there's what you notice when you're first watching the movie that happens up right. front, which I think the strongest thing that everyone in the theater had the experience that I went to whenever I saw it was the ending. Yes, the ending. Uh, so there's so much controversy and so much discourse over the relationship yeah. between yeah, and uh, so let, the black population and the police. Right. But no one in that theater doubted that he was going to be arrested or shot. No one, and and uh, so, and Jordan Peele said has has said this before. Like the the, the original ending to this movie was uh, Chris being arrested, and so and he, there's an alternate ending on the disc. You can yeah, actually see him in it, this. This ending was fully filmed. It reminds me of something that, weirdly enough, Kevin Smith did for his movie Red State, where every time he got to a point where he felt like he knew what was going to happen next, he would switch gears yeah. and do and go completely off the rails and go down that line until he felt like he knew what was going to happen next and then do, 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 do that again. That was Red State. This is kind of what happens at the end of Get Out, where you have an expected outcome and it's it's subverted in a way that is... In, that is uh, there's an, I, I can't say it without qualifying it, so I yes, won't. Yes, so, Ben, we don't really, you know, like, whatever. Why not not say what it is, you know? Yeah. It's not what you expect it to be. And yeah. that shows you that the writer and director was aware of your expectations. Right. And then there's the second sort of wave, which is after you've seen the movie in retrospect, where you notice things like the girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, playing you know, quote-unquote white savior with mm-hmm. the police. Right. It's actually a method of the police not being able to place where he was. If they had scanned his driver's license out there, there would be a trail and they're trying to have him disappear. So you notice that there's things that look like this at face value. Then you think back through the movie and you realize. So uh, with the police thing real quick, what that does is it uh, gives you this uh, reverse setup to a payoff. That's going to come much later because that cop is the cop you expect to see at the end of, the movie so that's what would so that's what oh, was yeah, set up I guess so. and then that's where the subversion happens the thing that like oh yeah that, the, so that primes you to yeah. like you have a cop who's been played as prejudiced and then there's a second viewing on the second viewing during the family reunion party when uh the girlfriend is introducing chris to the family members what i didn't realize at first because i didn't know what was going on at first is that that's an auction that's going on and what the family members are doing is they're sizing him up. They're getting an idea of what he can do to decide if they want to buy him or not. So there's this one person who says he's 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 a golfer and he knows Tiger Woods. And the very next thing is, so show me your stance. I, I want to see that so he can see if he has a good stance so he can take his body. Or then you have the artist who mentions he's envious of Chris's eyes and that's something that he wants. And just, 
it's uh, it's uh you know what and that's a thing that's worth noting about a movie is i'm sure that viewers had if we had an audience would have an issue with this podcast and it would be that usually based on adjectives we pick it's very telling whether or not we think something is positive or negative yeah so let me throw out some non-judgmental comments that might toss off that expectation of, of what how we feel about the movie okay the concept of a blind art critic wanting somebody's eyes because someone else told them that their images are good. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that logic tracks. Right. The person with money makes that decision based off of someone who we don't know why he trusts their judgment. That's true. We he's, That person is just known as the assistant. If that person, if, if the person who is the assistant can pick out art like that, then wouldn't, you would assume that they would be the, the all they would have to curator. Do, all all I would think they would have to do, yes, is is talk about him being curator, and have your main character be shown an off screen scan of the blind, uh, buyer's uh mm-hmm. collection, right, and have Daniel Kaluuya's character comment on how impressive it is. That's you, all you would need. Yeah. And and then you would know the the guy would pick up that I know that like I'm rich and I have a art collection that everyone thinks yeah. is good. So I know that my curator has good the taste that I want and I know that this person's tastes line up with mine. Yeah. So all those logic pieces would fall into place, yeah. but you don't have that in the Right. That it's 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 a lot of uh allowing the audience to i guess assume that that's what's going on and it, it it's not direct mm-hmm. um but yeah so <clears throat> more things the the yeah. silent auction that's silent that's the other thing is there's a key word that you don't pick up on until the second viewing when it, it, it's when the father says uh bingo that the girl the, the girlfriend is, is the one who suggests that they go for a walk. So the word bingo is not only the keyword, but they're also using bingo cards to uh, to uh, motion whether they want to put it down a bit or not. So it's... And then there's just the word bingo altogether. Yeah. The thing about Get Out is it feels like... It feels commercial. It feels like it relates to things that you've seen. And yet there's so much in the movie in terms of original ideas Mm -hmm. and things that you just haven't seen actually depicted. It's hard because I think they're all based on feelings that audiences have had. And so it feels like you're now seeing something familiar, but it's also original. Yeah. So there's just so much to talk about. Yeah. So like, I guess specific moments where... Uh, after, uh, after, uh, Chris has been, uh, uh, abducted, I guess, and he's stuck in a chair. What, uh, there's this little twitch that he does whenever he's under, which goes back to his, uh, past trauma where he just sat there doing nothing as his mom was dying on the side of, of the road. He naturally does this kind of scratching thing and he picks at whatever's close by. Mm-hmm. And that's established early on. So when he's sitting in, in the chair underneath the house in the basement and he's in the sunken place his hands just naturally do that and it causes the uh 
the 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 stuffed chair that he's on to be torn and there's there's cotton in it that he then uses to plug his ears later on yeah as to... they as they point out in horror noir he saves himself by picking cotton by having a buck which you know was a, a, apparently a slang term i didn't know this before i then. didn't know this either um all of these things that seem to have been used to silence uh black americans in black history are now being used to free him yes and again it's one of those things that feels obvious and yet you technically it's it's someone had to do it at some point you can't just say oh that's too obvious and write it off of a script yeah i'm curious on how how much the direction Mm -hmm. managed to get across emotions like again if the point, if there's a big point in movie making to building empathy, mm-hmm. if this movie was able to do something stronger than any example in recent memory, which it, if they managed to do that, I would want to know about it. So, like I said towards the beginning, like for any of you out there, there's so many of you, so many voices of writers, uh, directors, creative painters, poets. Uh, cosplay, like any community of artists that's out there, VFX or otherwise, you all have different standards you set for yourself on what counts as success. And there really was, especially since the 2010s have featured a sort of horror renaissance. Yeah. And horror was such a stepped on genre in the early 2000s in particular. It's been a stepped on genre like all throughout film history, you would think. You basically would, if you were in Jordan Peele's shoes, have to set your bar somewhere that you feel like, as long as I've achieved this, I can justify going through with this project. Otherwise, you're thinking of committing two to three years of your life to doing something that you feel like is not going to make money, Mm -hmm. is not going to be understood by anyone, is not going to bring you any satisfaction. So, that's what it is. Yeah. Like, so Get Out is a movie that was made seemingly for escapist purposes and for an audience to cheer for. Yeah. And in a way that you hadn't seen. And yet it's dealing with all these topics that are typically dealt with with a ton of emotional weight and a ton of, you know, you you just weren't free to just, like, explore these without it having to be some big statement or something like that. Yeah. And so... Almost with a sense of, like, happiness for the movie. Yeah. I feel like it's appropriate to go towards Friday the 13th Part 6. (laughs) Just because of the way that it is weirdly a success that the movie, with all its originality and creativity and everything that it had. Yeah. (laughs) I I just think it's, it's interesting that we were able to talk about these issues in a way that was entertaining enough to where the closest associated tone of horror of what we watched this week is Friday the 13th part six, mm-hmm. not to take anything away from get out. Oh no. But I just feel like it's fitting. We have a very heavy subject matter. So let's jump off to a ridiculously light one. Ridiculously <laughs> is an adverb. It qualifies that I am saying that it is light in tone. <laughs> so, so now we're on to Friday the 13th Part 6. This is my first time watching it. Uh, it is... So. It's just called, it, 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 it's I'm like just going to start by saying this. Okay. Human faces don't look like smiley faces. No, they don't. 
<laughs> Friday the 13th Part 6 is a slasher movie that uh, has all of the tropes of what you would expect to see in a slasher movie, minus some things. Uh, there's, like, for, for one thing, like, you, one thing you expect to see from a slasher fic is you expect to pick from a slasher film is you expect to see some form of nudity in there. There is none that I can remember in, in this movie. This is where we expose ourselves as, like, enjoyers of trash. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 whatever, there's more of us out there. We know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody out there who likes Friday the 13th and therefore would be agreeing to continue to listen to this probably also likes Red Letter Media and therefore already knows some of the stuff that I'm going to say. Yeah. But I've also seen most of Crystal Lake Memories, the documentary on the making of, like, okay. one by one. Yeah, movie. I still have not seen that yet. I need to, though. The fifth movie was directed by someone who previously directed porn. Yes. And was the most overtly nude one. Yes. And so in part six, they basically pulled everything back to, like, none. Oh, yeah. It's uh, like they wanted to rebrand. This whole movie, just the word rebranding. Yes, and it's it's the first time Jason's actually a monster, in a sense. Uh, they, like, uh, like they, they, they actually, specifically, the director specifically states that he... Notice that modern slasher movies were the closest approximation we had to original gothic right. horror monsters. And that's why everything is framed with the fences. Yeah. What I was going to say is, is bringing Jason back to life via lightning bolt is meant to invoke the old universal monster movies of the past. And uh, the big thing to talk about with uh, with uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 is just how much more menacing Jason is. And it's not the way that he kills people. It's how it's shown. Like when he takes a girl... That's in the Winnebago and smashes her face into the wall to the point where there's an imprint on the other side, a perfect imprint. And that's the last time you see her. One of the things that is, is that we also have to bring up this movie is uh, it's the first time that uh, a director was able to take Friday the 13th even a little bit lightly. Like Jason himself is still taken say, seriously. You said the big thing was the way that Jason becomes more imposing and menacing. And I definitely think they are more careful to frame him, not just as like a man, but as like an imposing entity. Yeah. But I think the big thing about Friday the 13th part six, since you then have Kane Hodder after this, who's really doing that, carrying that workload. Yeah. Uh, is the self-referential humor. Uh-huh. The, kind of breakdown of the formula of what it was i mean this is the first one where there's actually kids at yep. camp and uh the <laughs> oh yeah uh the, the writer goes out of his way to give a shout out to uh john carpenter which uh if you don't know the original friday the 13th was meant as a cash grab based on john carpenter's halloween and there's a town where the sheriff is trying to get uh oh god what's his name tommy jarvis yeah tommy jarvis too it's it's called the town of carpenter yeah. So it's it's a direct reference to the creator of the, the not direct... so proud parts of the roots of this right. franchise. Yeah. Right. The first time you see Jason and uh, there he's his corpse is covered with maggots and he's just this decaying ball of flesh. We mentioned with Changeling that and I actually I think I deleted this comment um that the 80s is really known for competitive special effects. Yeah. Like, there's another Shutter Horror documentary, Tom Savini, not showing my colors on what I do with my time. 
mm-hmm. or what we do with our time because you watch that too. So there was a lot of competition between special effects artists. Yes. Uh, so that in publications like Fangoria, you could track who was doing the makeup for what movies. Yeah. And so in, in, in this one, you can see a lot of the point of the budget is special effects. Yeah. Not time spent recording and re-recording with actors. So not the money didn't go as much towards film stock so that they could get better and better oh. takes. That money went towards special effects. Oh, yeah. Um, I ultimately would watch Friday the 13th Part 6 because gothic horror uh, slasher movies, uh, the mythology behind Jason the character, yeah. which is barely present before this but it's sort of it turns into something supernatural in this one yeah this is the first time jason is where 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 jason's supernatural strength actually makes sense and it's technically the third in a trilogy relating his character to the protagonist tommy jarvis yep but i also think it's funny that part five opens with a bad dream about going to dig up his body I don't. I didn't. I don't remember that. Uh, they had Corey Feldman, who played Tommy Jarvis in Part Four, reprise his role at the beginning, and then it's rain soaked, and everyone's at there, and they're digging up Jason's grave. Oh, and you know, there's like, and like he comes to life. So this movie actually repeats the opening of Five. Oh, so, so if you skip Five, you, you missed... miss nothing. So it so it 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 it, it acts as both a sequel and a redo. And a, yeah, all right. Not even a remake. There's nowhere close to the same story. So no. yeah, it's just like uh, just a, a reshot. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's it's almost like like the company said, yeah. Uh, sorry for that last movie. Here's the real next one. Yep, <laughs> almost. <laughs> and um, I just feel like sometimes escapism. You know, Curtis, you sent me a really great video not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And there is a pull quote from that video. I'm not going to cite what it is. I'm not going to do anything because I don't... Um, uh, I don't want to incite conflict over this. I, I don't think it's it's something that should be argued over. And that's inherent to the quote, which is... Uh, telling stories doesn't fit right as a competitive medium. Right. Like... If I were to say, like, tell you the story of how I lost my car keys, I was like, oh, you have no idea. The way I lost my car keys is so good, you should never tell the way you lost yours again. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense no. to me. So, this this concept of ranking and all that kind of stuff. You know who I love? And I'm just going to shamelessly show for this, even though their audience is... It's, it's like basically like begging for attention in, in a petty way. Okay. Dead Meat. James A. Janice and uh, Chelsea Rebecca. Mm-hmm. They are a couple who found success after working a long time with friends. Uh, you guys might know Drunk Disney videos. A couple of them have been pretty close to or full-on viral at a certain time. Practical Folks was their YouTube channel for a while, and they had some marginal success. And then they committed to horror as a genre for their thing and took off. And he does film reviews under the lens of kill counts, just tallying up the kills. And that's just really in tune, I think, with the appeal of the situation. Friday the 13th is the series he started with. Yeah. Oh. And that... and so that channel started with this. And I just feel like it was 
he demonstrates an understanding and they both demonstrate an understanding mm-hmm. of why movies are enjoyable for different reasons. Right. And the way that they talk about horror feels so safe. Okay. Uh, but I think Friday the 13th is a good point for that specific example. Because if you think of all the movies, uh, minus the first one, they're all the exact same movie with slightly different tweaks. It's Jason at a camp going around killing camp counselors because of past event. That's all the movies in a nutshell. Until you get to Jason X. Mm-hmm. And so this one, you would watch for... This one, if I, you were interested in meta commentary, yes, self-awareness, and a little bit more of a gothic slant on the whole slasher genre. Yeah, that that is the twist that this one takes. Yeah. So to prove that we're not just trash consumers, <laughs> I'm going to swing things really hard in the other way, and I want to talk about uh, Blue, the first film in the Three Colors trilogy directed by Christoph Kieslowski, and I. Sort of owe you an apology and sort of have my opening statement. Okay. Uh, when I was in minoring in film in college. Okay. Oh, that's right, bitches. <laughs> um, the impression that I got was that each one of these was themed off of a different sort of emotional element. And I thought the first one was, was a lot about processing depression. The second one was more about humor. The third was more about passion. You know, blue, white, red. I was wrong about the intent, but not wrong about the idea of stylizing them off of something. The three colors in the Three Color Trilogy represent the three colors of the French flag. Right. And are themed off of the three principles of the French Revolution. Blue being liberty, white being equality, and red being fraternity. So watching the the Criterion one and then reading the pamphlet and then getting to know a little bit completely changed the way I watched the movie. Okay. Because as you're watching it, just blue, those three colors are at play in the background of the movie. And when the lead character is refusing to finish her work, okay, you know, not known as being her work, there is a man who is trying to convince her to, to finish her work. Right. When he convinces her to come and review the progress he had tried to make at completing that work, the interior of his piano has red. Ooh. And there is red against the walls. And then the uh, sort of sex cluster, strip club or wherever it is, she meets a friend who's providing her with information about what's going on with her work. Uh-huh. Everything is lit red. Oh, dang. Okay. So these concepts of togetherness, fraternity, like... So they're all throughout all, all three movies. There's just one specific... That is the main focus of each movie. I, I, yeah. I feel like it's open to interpretation. The interesting thing is I'm not wrong. I haven't rewatched White and I'd be excited for us to watch Red. But, you know, it's going to resonate differently with different cultures. If you don't have that lens, you're just going to go into it with what you know. Yeah. When I watched it, I had no understanding of the history of the French Revolution or went on. I've never watched Les Miserables. You know, like, oh, I have now. But, you know. Okay. The, it just says something to where if you... Learn a little bit about a creator. It completely changes the way that you watch it. Right. It makes it so much more accessible and easy to follow. I think it's why Criterion always has some sort of pamphlet and and movie essay. And context. Yeah. So so the person who's watching the movie has as as much context as possible. Oh, and by the way, so so the idea behind uh, Blue, Liberty. Yeah. Is um, 
that she is becoming free from tragedy and a life that was keeping her from being right. She, you know, she was in a box in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so that's the ideas behind it. Uh, but I would say the times where white tends to invade the screen mm-hmm. are when she's sort of, there's an element of that where she achieves a status or a level of attention or pray or some kind of, again, equality to the fame that her husband had. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's just a lot of attention to detail when it comes to that. Yeah. Hard attention to detail to the point where sometimes it's less subtle. Like with, when there's a camera lens, you know, sometimes they do this sunset camera lens, which has like hard oranges at the top of it. And so everything yeah. you do all is automatically colored top half orange. Yeah. Uh, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it, that it's a special effect. But before that, you'd probably have recognized it's the nineties or earlier or whatever. Mm-hmm. They have one. It's just blue. Okay. They're recording just during the daytime out somewhere. And the top half of the screen is just blue. And I pointed it out to Samia and I was like, Wow. Yeah. And then other times it's so detailed yeah. and small. Anyways. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Blue, that's, uh, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. I've, I've, I've only seen it once and it's been months now since I've seen it. So recap and spoiler alert. I do know the beginning and how the beginning starts off with literally her, her whole family and daughter dying in a car wreck. You mostly, I think, are asked to feel what you're supposed to feel through the witness to the car wreck. Yeah. Who then comes to confront her later about it so there's a scene where they're meeting for the second time and he's trying to give back something that he took from the car wreck and she is saying keep it i always interpreted that scene as her rejecting anything that could possibly bind her to a past she wants to be her own person and free from anything that could uh color her future yeah so you don't really understand a lot about this woman's life by the time you've seen it all ripped away from her. But as you realize more and more about what's going on, you realize she was a musician and the husband was getting credit for her work. The husband was having an affair and in fact now has a child that is going to be born with the person she had an affair with. And she just gradually learns more and more about what was holding her back and what she's now free to do. If there's one feeling that I get throughout the entirety of this movie, going back to how you what you said at at first, this movie is a is an overly depressing movie. There's, no matter how many times you watch it, I think you're going to feel depressed watching it. And I think it's meant to do that. I, I think it's meant to help. I thought it was meant to help you process depression. Yeah. She feels like it was tragic what happened with her family. I mean, she tries to kill herself. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Instead it's... of being the only survivor with yeah. that. But like... now I understand that differently in terms of a value of fraternity. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. the idea of togetherness and family and closeness and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so instead of wanting to be separated from her for, from, from her family via death, she'd rather join them in death than to live mm-hmm. alone. Something that's unique to this movie that I, I don't see in any other movies and it's surprising because I'd expect it to be something I'd see repeated. Mm-hmm. The music playing that seems non-diegetic mm-hmm. whenever there's a flash to blue or a flash to black. I feel like it's diegetic for her. It's in her head. Okay. And I feel like those any moment in the movie where you fade out and fade back in on the exact same moment Mm -hmm. is a significant 
it represents a significant change, choice, or trajectory for her character. Okay. Um, so she wanted to kill herself, right? Yeah. But if you're to wait for her to associate the color blue with liberty, while she's staring right into the camera, the whole screen flashes blue and the music plays loudly. And so the whole, and the idea is she's free. The seed is in her head. Okay. And she doesn't try to kill herself again. All right. I can see that. Yeah. And then you associate her freedom immediately, the color blue immediately with her music. A lot to unpack with these. There is. I, mean, I think. I think that's just. Uh, I wonder if that's maybe why they've been studying them gratuitously in film schools and for all that kind of years. stuff for way too long. Yeah. yeah. Oh, too long. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I don't think there's anything else that I really want to say about Blue. Yeah, right at least now. not right now. Yeah. I'd be interested to revisit it as we go back and we see the other ones. Yeah. Um. Then see. I just hope it doesn't cause anyone who might want to listen to this to be like, oh, <laughs> so. The other movie that I watched this week was Uncut Gems, directed by the... the... We watched Good Time together! We did. So, for those of you who know, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. And the way that we met our esteemed host, King of the Mountain, Ricky Valero, was (laughs) by being invited to a a watch party. Yeah, Music City Drive-In watch party. Yes, uh, to watch Good Time. Where we disappointed him horribly by telling him, you know, about our first experience with Good Time. Which, if you haven't seen that movie, (laughs) and you have no idea what's going on going into it, it's going to intentionally upset you at times. Okay? But we're not here to talk about Good Time. We're here to talk about how hilarious it is that Ricky loves that one and hates Uncut Gems. Yeah. And we're not going to talk about... He's not going to get buzzed for his opinions on here. No, he's not. Okay? And we're not going to buzz about whether or not the thing is good or bad or anything like that. That's not what we're here to talk about. But the funny thing is, he always swore up and down, I guess if you don't like Good Time, you're going to like Uncut Gems. So. And like like you might like it or so-and-so. I don't know. <laughs> Other people have said it. So it's really fun to me. The idea, like, I wanted to watch it eventually and I couldn't wait to talk to him about it. Okay. So I'm, I'm, when I've seen Uncut Gems, I'd like to ask Ricky to guest star on our podcast okay and we'll talk about it a little bit more that's fine so me having not seen the movie you've seen Mm -hmm. just go and say whatever the most important (laughs) takeaways you got were the most important takeaway with uh, uncut gems is uh the is how much you come to realize the uh, safety brothers uh are in their film I, i the way that this film is presented reminded me a lot of a good time. Uh, common things. So like there, there's a lot of overlapping dialogue in both good time and in this movie. And the idea of the overlapping dialogue, at least from what I get is to like stir confusion to what's going on. Uh, uh, I think that's, I think that's telling about the Safdie brothers. I, watched their commentary on a series of martin scorsese short films Mm -hmm. uh and they were talking with the director of i want to say midsummer and hereditary ari aster yeah okay and uh it's interesting to me that they have such a vested interest in martin scorsese who always would talk about how he 
the, the you know at one point there I don't remember specifically what the movie was, but there was a movie that he wanted to make that he ended up telling Steven Spielberg to make because he just said that's your kind of movie, not my kind of movie. I've heard about this. I can't remember what it is though. The point is, Martin Scorsese is a director who knows what drives him to want to make a movie and what his story is, what his voice is, and what he's passionate about. Mm -hmm. It's telling that the Safdie brothers seem to have locked into a voice and a story. Like, you know, it told across multiple different stories, but still, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if whatever their next movie is ends up feeling the same. Especially with this movie. So, like, the act, so, Uncut Gems is about a jewelry dealer who has a gambling problem, runs into a stream of bad lucks until the very end. That's how I would sum up this movie. And it's Adam Sandler. And it's Adam Sandler. And another, to add to the reasons of people saying, like, he can act, why the hell does he keep not doing it on purpose? <sighs> I get <laughs> I mean, like, I saw, I saw like, I've, I've never seen Punch Drug Love, which is um uh, supposedly one of uh punch trunk love spanglish and yeah. uh one i don't remember yeah but i i haven't seen any of those movies okay the only adam sandler movies i've seen are adam sandler movies hmm. until this one the okay everyone's gonna know exactly what you meant by the only adam sandler's that we have seen are adam sandler movies like they, oh right yeah because like... they're because they're they're officially a genre of film at this point uh so well, the the emotions that uh, Uncut Gems is trying to give you. How do I put this? Down on your luck. It's, it's a guy who... A lot of people say, like, it's anxiety from beginning to end. I mean, not not from beginning to end, hmm. is what I'll say. Like, as soon as Adam Sandler lends the uh, the Black Opal out with the promise of getting it back and he has the, the NBA's uh, championship ring as a collateral... From that point on, everything is nothing but anxiety because you don't know what's going on. Everything is viewed through the lens of Adam Sandler's character. If he doesn't know something, then that means you don't know something. Mm. And it's the uncertainty that of, of everything where that anxiety comes from. So there's anxiety coming from the angle of the opal and not knowing where that is. And then there's anxiety coming from his home life where he's going through a divorce. The impression that I got upon first viewing is that he sees being a parent as kind of a, a, a hindrance to what he wants to do. And that kind of stems from his overall gambling issue uh, problem. It's one of those movies that leads you to think that the ending is going to be uh, a happily ever after. And then kind of like with the good times ends unexpectedly tragic so for for yes. so okay so i think this might be something we have to revisit after you've seen it but uh it seems significant that that the Safdie brothers have this very specific type of story that they like to tell that other people can latch onto i it makes i don't get i, I guess this is something for me I, I don't get how people can some watch something like uh like good time and not like something like un, un, uncut gems because the stories them not not the story the 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 tone of the movies themselves are very similar it's it's still like a dark piece of media i don't know well the characters are different the characters i know that much i haven't seen the movies yet but i know that robert pattinson's character and mm. adam sandler's character are not the same people no uh, but they seem to play in the same world and i feel like maybe that's where you were going the Safdie brothers may be the kind of directors who have their own world that these characters play in but that world is one that is filled with anxiety, apparently. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure put on certain people. And those are the people that they seem to care about. 
Yeah, that's about all I can say about it. Okay. Okay. So, briefly, last, I've seen the Swedish girl who played girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm. But I, what I watched last time we talked was the American girl with the dragon tattoo, then jumped to the Swedish girl who played with fire. And there were so many little things, and such a stark contrast in either the David Fincher or Hollywood machine versus the production of the Swedish Millennium series, which is almost more documentary shot. That cold uh, style that David Fincher puts into his movies Mm -hmm. was present in a different way in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that's Swedish. Okay. But it's more from set, it's more from weather, it's less from digital style or anything, because these are shot... This one was shot on 16mm film, played with fire, and I think the first one was shot on 35mm film. Um, And what that makes it... That makes it look completely different, that makes them move the cameras completely different. And so... And there's a dramatic shift in tone. But I talked about last time, the interesting thing about the girl with the dragon tattoo is it feels like a story is happening and then you move away to almost the once upon a time of another story, then come back to finish this story. Mm-hmm. And the girl who played with fire is all about continuing that story that you were never with in the first one. Oh. And so it's almost like, did you like the end caps of the first movie? Well, then we really think you'll like this. Okay. And more to the point, it is about Lisbeth. You learned all about the main character, Mikael Blomquist, in The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And The Girl Who Played with Fire, it is about Lisbeth, her relationship with other people, her background, what she did, and, you know, her family and all that kind of history. And... A lot of the time of this movie is devoted to unpacking a new mystery, which is that she's framed for murder. Okay. But that is so much more pressing and in their present world and is stakes that are directly aimed at the main characters versus a story about two characters who happen to have a really unique uh, skill sets mm-hmm. who come into another story and investigate it. I went tonally in my experience from cold, digital, passion, slow, Trent Reznor, David Fincher. I already said David Fincher. Girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm. To warm, tense, no mirror pace, slow, regular score, film direction. Huh girl who played with fire so in a weird way you know how movies are always trying to like up the stakes and make things seem more intense and usually if you make a sequel you're trying to do quote-unquote bigger and better than the first one yeah this one felt like it the story was supposed to up the stakes for the characters but the movie the way that it was made felt like it it lowered it's it's it seems like you jump from a very precise production to a less careful production that didn't care as much about the consequence uh. of what it looked like. Now, I should be saying, I have been rewatching also the extended versions of the Swedish okay. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So I don't know how the movie was originally paced. And there are times where I feel like things are 
less color corrected, less processed, and less uh, lit carefully. Mm -hmm. And I did find out that a lot of those scenes that were heavy on exposition were not in the original cut of the movie. Yeah. But the thing is, they are sort of crucial to understanding the motivations of the characters. And and that is sort of important to how empathetic you are to a character. Like, you know, if Lisbeth does show that she has care for someone that she's in a relationship with, that's a lot more important than just the shock of she sees the collateral damage of being who she is. Okay. There's, there's, it's different in a way. And so I would say the girl who played with fire, you get some of the flavor of what you get from the girl with the dragon tattoo, but you're forced to spend a lot more time on things that are not the mystery. And if the appeal of the first one was a mystery driven by interesting characters, this one is trying to explore a character and hope that that's a good mystery. Okay. So, I'm going to stop it there for now and come back to it at another time. Because yeah. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I'm starting to understand, is like a bigger, like the, the, the whole, it's one millennium story in the extended version. Part one, two, three, four, five, and six. And... Then there is the girl in the spider's web that I didn't even bother to see, mm-hmm. which is the book that was written, you know, all of the girl with the dragons, the girl with series, mm-hmm. the, the millennium trilogy was published after the death of the author. Wow. I had no one did not know that. Yeah. And, um, the girl with the, and the spider's web, I don't understand entirely what was compiled together to make that, but it was written after the death of the author. Hmm. And adapted into the only American continuation of the series. And it's not even clear whether or not they they play it up as a sequel to the first one or not. Okay. So this property, it's like people seem to understand and put a lot of attention into the first one. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to get the sense that with the rest of this story, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of... I will say this though, Nomi Rapace, Mm -hmm. uh, without trying well i like her girl with the dragon tattoo is a uniquely distinctly her character Mm -hmm. and she has never gotten to show as much emotion with any character save possibly her character in prometheus in anything that you know those movies gave her a lot of success Mm -hmm. the first girl with the dragon tattoo in sweden came out in 2009 that was the same year as the first sherlock holmes she was in the second the guy Ritchie one oh wow in 2011, the same year that the American Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came out. Okay. You know, and then she had this wave of success, but the thing is, then she was she was in Locke. She's in this movie called Dead Man Down. She her, The trajectory of her career has put her from being the central protagonist in a breakthrough role further and further down the pipeline into side characters who don't do as much until she's basically not working. Wow. In, in, in at least the the pop culture like machine Mm -hmm. and i would i I have to go back and look up what she's doing now but okay that's that's something yeah so heavy episode yeah wacky roller coaster but there's a lot of horror and a lot of tension and i think that's appropriate for the movies that we watch yeah so i'm gonna call it here uh and say thank you everyone for listening uh i'm eric and you can follow me at high contrast flm on twitter or high contrast on instagram uh, I'm Curtis. You can follow me on Twitter 
at 90sgamer407, and uh, I, do, I do do some streaming every now and then on Twitch. You can follow me by that same handle. And remember, if you kind of like us but aren't sure you like us, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. And I recommend, uh, for those of you interested in movies, watching the Now Showing podcast. Um, so if you want, you can head on over to musiccitydrivein.com. But thank you all for listening. <laughs>